Hello friends and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. Now as an HR professional, one of the things you most likely look forward to is the conferences, right? You get a chance to network with your friends, make new friends, look for new opportunities, and most importantly, get those very, very important Sherman HRCI recertification credits. Well, you probably realize this year has been different, right? Your conference might have gone virtual or canceled. And if you have been somebody who waits to the last minute for things, myself included, you probably need to get some credits. Good news for you. If you go to bossbuildersuniversity.com, you'll see we have a wide array of courses that are already pre-approved for Sherman HRCI credit, some even for the business credit. Check us out at bossbuildersuniversity.com and see what we have to offer. I know you will not regret it. Did you know that only 23% of people think their leaders lead well? Now, when I heard that quote, I was a little bit shocked. I could not believe it. But you know what? I think that it's probably true. Our guest today is Allah Hunkins. Now, he is the author of Cracking the Leadership Code. And what we talk about today are some of the things that leaders need to know so they can be more effective and not fall into this horrible place where people don't respect them. There are a lot of really good practical tips here that as an HR professional, you can pass along to your management team. And please listen until the very end because he's got a really great offer that I think you and your team ought to be thinking about taking advantage of. Uh, great interview. I really love talking to him. The most tough thing about it was learning how to pronounce his name. I think I finally got it down. But either way, enjoy this interview. It was one of the best ones I think I've ever had. So let's quit talking about the man. Let's talk to him. You know what to do. Take that personal item. It goes underneath the seat in front of you. Make sure that seatbelt is buckled up and make sure you wipe it down too. It's time for us to take off. Should the cabin lose pressure, Oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. <sighs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and start. So, uh, Alain, did I say it right? Alain, Alain, a little, Alain. A little higher. <laughs> Alain Hunkins, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mac. I'm so excited to be with you here today. Yeah, I didn't realize the biggest challenge of our show would be, be me trying to pronounce your name. So, let's do it again. I want you to say it nice and loud and slow. It is Alain Hunkins. Alain <laughs> Hunkins. Okay, there, there you go. go. I would have called you Mr. Hunkins, but there we go. Yeah, I oh, can do that. Only if I'm in trouble. That's right. Well, uh, you're not in trouble today, trust me. <laughs> hey, but it is great to have you on the show. And for those of you that don't know, he is the author of the book Cracking the Leadership Code. And we're in a time of pandemic when a lot of people are looking for leadership. They're looking probably wherever they can find it. And for many people, it is their work life, their company, their boss. And frankly, I don't know if anybody's doing a really good job at that. So we want to talk about the leadership code today. 
But before we get into some of these questions, you do have a very interesting background. Would you be willing to share that with us? Yeah, sure. Happy to, Mac. Yeah. People often ask me, I said, so did you always know you wanted to write and speak about leadership? I said, oh yeah, when I was five, this is what I wanted to do. No, <laughs> not at all. No, I mean, my background is if I have to look backwards, this is the beauty of hindsight being 2020, I would say the common thread is I've always been really, really fascinated by people, specifically why people do what they do and then the impact that that has on the people around them. And I think that has a lot to do with my fairly unusually unique background. So I was born in New York City, not unique, had a single mom, also not unique, was raised by my mom and my grandmother, also not unique. The kind of unique part about it was that my mom and my grandmother are both Holocaust survivors. And my mom was born in 1935, and she spent from the time she was six until she was 10 separated and in hiding. And my grandmother was actually arrested and then ultimately liberated from a concentration camp. And then the two of them were reunited, and they were my primary parents. And as you can imagine, that world experience completely shaped how they raised me, which was really different than my experience going to New York City public schools in the 1970s and 80s where, you know, I'm being with friends. And so I think part of my quest to figure out what motivates people, what drives people, what inspires people, what engages people has a lot to do with trying to make sense of my original family of origin. Now, I don't blame my parents, you know, they, they did the best they could. And I also realized because of their experience around trust, around basically being hunted for your life, how much that shaped what they, what messages they sent me around things like being afraid or fearful or how much you should extend yourself or communicate. And so my life's work really in a lot of ways has been about learning to move beyond that and help people figure out how can we make this a more engaging, vibrant, alive and better world by being more effective with each other, or I call it more poetically, to kindle the fire of brilliance in each of us. I think we all have tons of potential, and life is a journey of figuring out how we can unleash that potential. So that's kind of what led me to doing what I do now. I'm just wondering about your childhood growing up. What sorts of behaviors did you see from your mom and grandmother that were different than maybe some of your friends? Well, I th that's a great question, Mac. Wow, it's a great question. So I think one thing was with my grandmother particularly, there was a certain level of volatility and unpredictability. Now, I've talked to friends whose parents have been alcoholics or addicts, and they've had a silly experience where you never know who's going to show up at any given moment. And with my grandmother, it was literally minute to minute where she could vacillate between being really angry and kind of loud raging raging and loud to completely quiet. And I never knew what, what would show up. So there's that piece to it. Another thing I also got told, I literally was told things like, don't ever share information with anyone unless they ask you for it. So I remember being told that like, literally like, don't share that. Like I'd share, like I'd be on the phone, like don't share that. And then don't you ever share, like they would be like, and not only would they say it, but they'd have this emotional reaction. Like don't ever share information unless people ask you for it, you know, because that was the thing, right? Like if they were on the street during World War II and someone wanted to see their papers, this is a question of life and death. And they had somehow internalized that. So it was, you know, they had a tough time. They had a tough time. And my heart just is just filled with 
just grace for both of them and just what the experience that they lived through was because I've never had to experience anything like that myself firsthand. Where were they in Europe when they were going through this? Yeah, they were in Belgium. So my mom is born in Brussels. My grandmother's from Poland originally. And so they were in Brussels, Belgium going through this. And um, my my grandfather was actually captured and then repatriated is, is the euphemism back to Germany. And he was killed early on in the war in 1941-42 back in in Germany. He was actually in one of the first mobile gas chambers that the Nazis were were trying out. We've discovered that. So anyway, it's just uh yeah, it's it's uh it's a tough thing to go through. And I think if nothing else, it's taught me to appreciate when things are good, <laughs> they're they're okay. You know, and even like having to deal with li- living at home during a pandemic, like I can cope with this. This isn't so bad in comparison to the way things were. You know, people saying, hey, you know, my kids are going to miss out on all their outreach. Like my mom missed four years of school. I think, you know, she's, she, she got through it. Like you, we're going to be okay. People are more resilient than we think we are sometimes. I think that's what's lost on a lot of people. You know, I was, I'm a little bit of a World War II history buff. And to think that there was sometimes 15 and 16 year olds that snuck into the Marine Corps. And we're out there fighting these battles. And I think, you know, people said the youth of America, they're, you know, this and then I thought I, I would imagine they would step up if they had to because they've already done it. Yeah, exactly. The human body and the human brain can certainly make adjustments. But, yeah, we definitely are in a much different time. But it sounds like that has had a very profound effect on just the way you look at life, which I guess gives you a really unique perspective on leadership. And it says here, I'm looking at some of the facts that you gave me here, that only 23% of people think that their leaders lead well. That's really, really pathetic. It is. It's really pathetic. And uh, and maybe not surprising. And it's funny because, you know, the great thing about these surveys, and that particular survey comes from a company called Ketchum Communications from their leadership monitor. And what's interesting is if you ask people to fill out an anonymous survey, they'll be honest with you. You know, I bet if you went into any organization and you stood up and, you know, if you had the CEOs and the chief executive you know, the leaders all standing up in front of the group and said, okay, how many of you think that we're lousy? <laughs> no, who's, who's going to raise their hand, right? That is a career limiting move. And so one of the things is I think leaders, we, in general, leaders, we tend to be very blind to our own blindness. We don't even realize how bad things actually might be. We tend to overestimate our abilities. And the fact is, and this has been for generations now, what tends to happen is you have people who are very good at what they do as an individual contributor. So you have a really good salesperson who's really good at selling stuff. They're like, oh, you're a really good salesperson. Let's make you the sales manager, right? And so we end up as, you know, the famous Peter principle, we promote people to their level of incompetence. Suddenly when you're a sales manager, it's a whole different set of skills than it is to actually selling. And so we have to realize that all of us, no matter what our title or what level or what function or what industry, we are all first and foremost in the people business. And so one of the biggest challenges that a lot of us face is we get into these roles of leadership, formal leadership, and we basically copy the leaders that we've known. And most of them did a bad job because this all dates back to the beginning of the industrial revolution, where the basic employee value proposition was shut up and do as you're told. Because what they wanted, as Henry Ford famously said of his employees at the Ford Motor Company factory, was, why is it when I want a pair of hands 
they come with a brain attached. Like, you know, that was the world of manual labor. Just shut up, do what you're told. And if you don't, there's 20 other pairs of hands out on the street that'll take your job. And that's the kind of legacy that so many leaders today have inherited, even though we don't live in the industrial era anymore. You know, we are smack dab in this knowledge work age where everyone at every level has to think creatively and problem solve and move information and meet customer needs in a much faster pace than ever before. So when 21st century leaders continue to cling to this early 20th century mindset, they are destined to struggle, which leads you to only 23% of leaders leading well. Well, this has been going on for a long time. And I mean, there's still, I mean, one of the pipelines into corporate leadership comes through the military. And having been in for 15 years, that was absolutely the mindset. Just do what you're told. Don't ask why, don't ask how. Just like the statement you made, you know, uh, do you like your leader? Raise your hand. Good Lord. I mean, that's that's significantly career limiting and probably even beyond career limiting. So there's always going to be this flow of people with this mindset. Are you making the case that we could fix this problem? Oh, yes, we need to. And the, the good news is not only do we need to, there are people who are doing it already. I'll just give you an example. I write about this guy in the book. He's pretty well known, uh, Satya Nadella, who is now the CEO of Microsoft. So most people are familiar with Microsoft. So Bill Gates founded them, you know, and he was the first CEO. They were very successful under Bill Gates. And then, um, and they, but at the same time, Microsoft had this very hard driving, hard charging, egocentric culture where people, you know, Gates was sort of famous for always needing to take people down a peg. Well, he was followed up by the next CEO, Steve Ballmer, who was really kind of a rah, rah, again, hard driver. And so at this point, you know, Microsoft is very well known, but over, over Ballmer's tenure, the overall market cap dropped by 11%. So in comes Satya Nadella who's a, cut from a very different cloth. And Nadella comes in and he's he's been with Microsoft for 20 years. And the first thing he does when he meets with the executive team is he hands everyone a copy of the book, Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. Now, what's interesting is this isn't just a book. This is actually a whole process by how to think about interacting with people which is about seeking to understand them and to build bridges and communicate as the title says nonviolent communication. Mm -hmm. And so, and the other thing that Nadella has been really well known for is bringing in the ideas uh, of mindset made famous by the book mindset by Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist out in Stanford. And she writes about the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And the way Nadella describes it, he said, we have too many people here at Microsoft who are know-it-alls. Know-it-all culture is going to kill us. We need to be a learn-it-all culture. And he has completely transformed that culture because he has modeled what I would call a humble-first, learner-first, ego-to-the-side culture of leaders, more so. Now, I'm sure there are pockets. I don't know Microsoft, every single person. There's hundreds of thousands of people. But overall, that culture has transformed. And under his watch, you know, Microsoft is now in that club of the over trillion dollar market cap people. I mean, he has, I want to say quadrupled, but probably even more so on the market cap since he came in about five and a half, six years ago. So it's just an example of people are doing that. And that's a very well-known example. You don't need to be the CEO of a large company to do this. We all influence people all the time. So it really comes down to what is your mindset 
And then what are the behaviors that you get into? And the book is really designed to take a look at how do you adopt this new style of leadership mindset? And then what are the skills that this new style of what I'll call a facilitator in chief, as opposed to being the commander in chief, what that facilitator in chief needs to do in order to be successful. But I mean, I'm thinking about this. If I was the commander in chief, I don't know if I'd want to take myself down a peg to be the facilitator in, in chief because that sounds just weaker. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It, it almost know? sounds like you're, you're you're wishy-washy. Like I don't know the answers. What do you all have? Which yeah. I mean, I guess could be fine. But let's put it into today's context yeah. of uh, a, a an enemy that we can't see. We've got unrest in the streets. We've got an economy that's in the tank. I mean, yeah. you know, there's there's problems every time you turn on the. If you can watch the news for thirty minutes and you get the good news at the last two minutes, you know, there's yeah. there's nothing but bad. So how does that stand up today? Because this is the time I'm thinking you need the commander in chief to take charge because no one else knows what the hell they're doing. Oh, interesting, interesting way to think about it, Matt. So I think that what you say is we want the commander in chief to take charge because what we have is a lot of people who are very afraid on multiple levels and look for really good reason. So the challenge though, and, and I think you said it too, is the challenge is that no one has the answer. What we want is we would love to have the commander in chief, the all seeing, all knowing who actually came in and said, I can solve this. I have the vaccine. But I think what people are tired of are people who are pretending like they see it all and know it all. And then they get into those roles and we find out, no, you actually don't. And especially in an organization. I mean, we live in a world today with anyone who's got an ethernet cable and an internet connection suddenly has access to the same information that just about anyone else does. So why I say facilitator in chief is because we don't no longer does the executive leader have the corner on the market. And the fact is we live in this age of transparency. And so if you pretend to know stuff that you don't know and are just trying to sell us on, well, I'm in charge, do this, it's going to come out. It's going to come out that you don't know what you're doing. It's going to come out that you're not competent or you. So instead of doing that and trying that approach, why not just admit the obvious, which is no one has all the information. But what my role as the leader slash facilitator in chief is, is to move information from where it is to where it needs to be. And I think it's less. And yes, we need strong leaders who then when they get the information, have to make a decision have to say, now let's do this. But they can't do that decision-making in a vacuum. They can't do it you know, in that little cone of silence like Maxwell Smart, right? They actually have to get the, get the information from the people around them. So you know, I think the challenge is that, especially when people are feeling afraid, they want to go. And I, you know, I call it, it's the mommy-daddy syndrome. It's like, mommy, daddy, take care of me. You know, make all the bad stuff go away. And then when people feel that way, they want to look for these simple solutions. And I think that's where you get the, I mean, that I think is what creates the rise of, for example, fascism, right? The sense of, oh, I want a strong man. Like there's this myth of the strong man, the strong woman, the strong leader who's going to like take care of it all. Well, that mm -hmm. hasn't worked. That hasn't worked out so well in history <laughs> over time. Well, yeah. I mean, you can go back to your family heritage and see how that turned out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Well, for someone who's my age, so I'm baby boomer years, um, I'm actually more used to somebody just telling me what I ought to do. And you you are. Know, part of me protests, but I look at my kids now, one of whom is 24 and one who's 21. I don't think they're wired that way. Are they going to be something that pushes this new leadership code? Uh, they're not going to be. They already are. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yes, they are. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, you know, I'm a Gen X, but I'm so I'm kind of in between. I'm that little tiny generation between boomers. And then we get into millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z. So, yes, very much. I mean, the boomers, you and I'll say you because you identified as a boomer, you were raised to basically follow the commander in chief, right? Shut up, do what you tell, keep your nose clean and you'll have a job and you'll, you know, 20 years later, we'll have a little retirement party for you and a gold watch and here's your pension and you're all set. Right? That was sort of the model and the boomers, you all bought that model and said, OK, if that's the way the game is played, I'll play it. Well, you know, and I've had the good fortune to be able to kind of straddle these generations. But let's say, for example, I work in the consulting business, the, firm, the industry where the typical model for years was you hire some smart people right out of school and you work their tails off. And they knew there would be this churn and burn, right? We're going to have a few people who are going to push through and they end up rising and going from staff one to staff two to junior manager to manager to senior manager. And one day they'll make partner with the firm, right? 20 years later, they'll be partner in the firm and everyone will live happily ever after. Well, probably about the beginning of the 2000s, what they started to notice um, as the Gen X and then further on as Gen Y got into the workforce into the 2010s is that the young people coming in said, I'm not going to play this game. I, I don't want to work 70 hours a week doing meaningless work. Forget it. I won't do it. And then they suddenly had this talent shortage on their hands because they realized their model was all built around a churn them and burn them, work 70 hours and pay your dues model that the new generation was not willing to do. And they had to realize, oh, we need to lead differently. We actually have to engage people and create opportunities for people to grow and learn at work. In fact, I was reading a study recently in LinkedIn they did. The number one reason people say they would leave their job is their inability to learn and grow. I mean, when you were coming up, Mac, as a boomer, unless the building was on fire, you probably stayed with your job for a long time. The Bureau of, La of Labor Statistics has found like the average tenure for workers today, age 25 to 34, is 2.8 years. So they're not expecting. So what is your compelling reason for them to stay? You know, we talk about the gig economy. I mean, more and more people are working on a literal project by project basis because this because technology has enabled that. So leaders, if they want to get smart, they're going to go get smart. I didn't even plan that one. <laughs> going back to get smart from before. Um, yeah. yeah. If, if leaders want to get smart, they need to recognize what is going to make an environment where people are going to perform at their best. And the three fundamentals, and I call these the three secrets of building strong leaders, it's all about leading with connection, communication, and collaboration. Well, if that's the case, then I don't know whether this, we could say, I guess the next two generations would be what Y, y and Z, right? Are those the youngest yeah, ones? They're, they're the ones now who are kind of entering into the workforce. Yeah. Y and Z. And then there's the next generation beyond them. But I think they were just like born about 10, 10 years ago. So they're not in the workforce yet. Yeah. And then there'll be, I heard somebody say generation C, the COVID generation, but yeah. So I'm going down another path, but I'm just 
curious, do you think that there could be something that could switch the mindsets of the younger workers to go back to that boomer mentality? Or do you think that that the horse is out of the barn, it ain't ever coming back? I think the horse is out of the barn and I don't think it's coming back. Um, I mean, unless there's like a massive world change. I mean, when I'm talking about like global catastrophe where, you know, basically it's only, only let's say whether it's, whether it's, yeah, I mean, it's some kind of global catastrophe where people are just, I mean, I'm sort of imagining this kind of this Mad Max scenario. Other than that, no, I think for the most part, the horse is out of the barn. And I think too, I mean, and think about it, Mac, think about probably, think about the way you probably raised your kids versus the way your parents raised you. I mean, this whole idea of taking an interest in people, that wasn't a thing that our parents' generation did with us in the same way that we do. And so not only is it a work thing, I think it has to do with like, an, it has to do with an evolution of human rights is that people, our expectations about life have just changed. We're not willing to just say, that's fine. So I think the horse is definitely out of the barn. Well, I mean, that's good news for someone who is looking for an opportunity to step up and lead. What are the chances that someone, let's just say my age, would be able to just say, you know what, I'm going to be enlightened. I'm going to start doing things different. Is that possible? Can a person change and go to this new mindset? Could they go from a Steve Ballmer to, what was the other guy you mentioned? The new Sachin, guy? Sachin, Sachin Adela. Yeah, his name is harder they? to pronounce than yours, you know? Yeah. Well, there, there you go. <laughs> See, you're there in good you company go. there, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But I mean, yeah. is it, but let's just take a hypothetical Steve Ballmer. What would it take mm -hmm. to enlighten him? Because there he's very go. successful. I think he owns the Clippers now, doesn't he? Yeah, he does own the Clippers. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, and it's if interesting. If you can be proud to own the Clippers, you know, it's yeah. like me saying I'm proud to own a Yugo, right? <laughs> <laughs> Only a few people will get that one. Yeah. Uh, I got it. I know what a Yugo is. Okay, um, so, um, and I'm not driving one either. Um, well, I don't think they're even around. They just fell apart, basically. Yeah, literally, they fell apart. The the cars and the company. Um, so, in terms of can people change? Yeah, but there's got to be the want to. I mean, you can say, well, Steve Bomber change. Look, if Steve Bomber is happy doing what he's doing, and you know, he's he's a billionaire. He's fine. You know, so financially, he's well off. If he sees no incentive to change, he won't. Humans are notoriously good at staying at what they've done. However, if he goes, hey, you know what? I think this would make me even better Then maybe, you know, but he's got to hit some kind of personal insight inflection point. And, you know, that's different for different people. Some people have to experience it personally. You know, some people have, can experience it through someone close to them impacting them. I mean, it's amazing, you know, how many people, like, for example, the COVID pandemic, it sort of seemed like this abstraction, this is really going on, but it isn't until someone, you know, gets sick, then suddenly it's real, or you get sick if you're the first person, you know. So, you know, we all have these wake up calls that are potential wake up calls. And unless it's real enough to us, it's so easy just to hit the snooze button on the alarm. It's like, yeah, you know. So again, if I'm Steve Ballmer, for example, and I'm super wealthy and I own the Clippers and it's all fine, and of course people are deferring to me because I've got a lot of money and power, I also have created this bubble where I'm thinking, oh, I'm doing this perfectly. 
you know, people always, I'll give it for an example. People always talk about Steve Jobs, like how brilliant he was. He built Apple. And, you know, if you heard stories about Steve Jobs and his personal behavior, he wasn't necessarily the most, as we'll call your word, enlightened of connecting, communicating, and collaborating as a leader. And people say, but see how great he was. And I like to think, yeah, so Steve Jobs did some amazing things. And to me, the question is, did he, was he so great because he was that type of leader or might he have been even better? And that actually was, he was so great in spite of that. I mean, obviously we'll never know because we can't do an experiment where we clone Steve Jobs in one universe and have a control and a variable. But overall, to me, it comes back to some basic humanistic fundamental principles that have been around for thousands of years. And all of my work is based on principles. So if we look at connection, what we know, and the science and the research supports this, is that people perform better when they're in environments where they feel safe and that they trust the people they are around. They will also work harder for people that they know, they like, and they trust. They know that when people feel cared for, it's the number one reason that people will stay at a job as opposed to look for a new job. So there are all sort, there's all sorts of research and principles behind connection, communication, and collaboration. We know, for example, when it comes to collaboration, is that when people feel that what they're doing matters, that there's a bigger, higher purpose, is that they bring more energy and they perform better. There was this great research that was done by Adam Grant at Wharton where he had a, a group of uh, people who were doing fundraising on behalf of University of Pennsylvania. And they were just making calls, trying to raise money. And they did that for a while. And then what they did is they actually brought in some of the UPenn students who were benefiting from the scholarships that they were raising talk to these fundraisers and share their stories so that the fundraisers could see this is why you're doing what they're doing. So then they went back to work after they met the students and their fundraising levels went through the roof. I mean, they were able to raise so much more money because they were that much more connected and passionate So, to, and connected to that purpose. So I bring these up because the principles have been around for thousands of years, connection, communication, collaboration. They have to be adapted and adopted for our time. And when you work those principles, they will work for you. And I'm just a super firm believer in that. And you can always point out the exception. It's like, look, look, I mean, look at, I won't even name names here, but look at some political leaders we have right now. You say like, look, but they're, look at the role they have and they're not doing any of this stuff. It's like the exception does not prove that the principle does not work. Mm -hmm. Well, I think over time, it's, it just seems like this is a wave that's going to hit if it's not already hitting and there's no turning back from it. It's just going to be a matter of time before there's this major shift is what it sounds like. Am I pretty close to that? Yeah, I think you're seeing that more and more. I think you're seeing that more. I mean, just look at with every generation, how much more people are looking for equality across everything. I mean, in, in life, you know, we look at so young people today, I think are more uh, passionate, excited about creating a world where there is more equity across things. Um, and so, you know, this whole idea of the whole idea of holding on to this old style, just because I said so it's, you can only keep people down in that way for so long. Even if you're the 
quote unquote benevolent dictator. You know, people are going to, to people are going to want to find new ways of being and working, especially when they start seeing models of it. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, 50 years ago, if you were stuck in a job that was lousy, you didn't have Glassdoor, you didn't have LinkedIn, you didn't have access to realizing other things. We have so much access where we can compare our experience to the experience of others. I mean, we all look at that at the kind of geopolitical level. Look at what happened with like different the Arab Springs and all the different countries going off. And they were organizing with things like Facebook and Twitter. I mean, we this technology is enabling a level of transparency like we've never seen. Um, look at all of, I mean, I write in the book about Susan Fowler who was a software engineer at Uber, and she wrote a blog post about the crazy culture of sexual harassment. And she brought down the CEO and and the top 20 people at the organization through a blog post, right? So there is this level of transparency with which comes a certain level of accountability. You know, yes, people can try to put things in the dark and hide them, but it's getting harder and harder. I mean, all of us leave a digital footprint. I mean, if I went and Googled Mac Monroe right now, I'm sure I could find a lot of stuff out about you, Mac, just like you could for me. And so we are but living you in this. Hey, you wouldn't find the real good stuff. Though. I know, I know I wouldn't. <laughs> all, but all of which to say is, you know, we are all leaving these clues and people put leaders under a microscope. Now that microscope can be for good or for bad, depending on the type of leader you are. So I think we're going, we expect a lot from leaders and we're going to expect even more so from them as we move forward. Well, thinking about moving forward, I just want to ask you a couple more questions. The first one is right now. So we'll timestamp this. We're in the first week of September, 2020 which I think this was a week a lot of people figure, well, we ought to be, you know, we would have licked this thing by now. We ought to be going back to normal. And we're probably headed into a major second wave of infections and things like that. As a leader in an organization that is on this fence of, should I bring the workers back? Should I let them continue to work from home? There's people that are, they're going to have to keep their kids in, 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 you know, at home in school How does a leader react to that, all the uncertainty, while still wanting to maintain the fact that they're a facilitative kind of a leader? What what advice would you have for the leader who's listening to this today? Yeah. So the first thing I would say, anyone's, yeah. And first of all, we're all in the soup. I mean, this is a big mess. And what's happening, whether it's an organizational level, whether you're looking at superintendents of schools by individual school district to school district, are having to make some decisions that really should have been made at a much higher level, at a national level, to be able to deal with this, certainly in the US. I mean, I just think I know you, Mac, uh, I told you, you know, I just I just moved back after being in Europe, in the Netherlands for the last two years, where the approach on how to deal with the virus has been very different from in the US. So, here you are, you're in a leadership role. Like, how do I deal with this? I've got all my people at home and they might be trying to have their kids who might be at home too. Well, the first thing I think is connection, right? So how do you reach out to your people? Ideally one-on-one, or if, you know, if you lead a team of leaders, then having them reach out to their people, but you should be reaching out to yours. And first just connecting and checking in with them at the human level, you know, because, the first thing we need to do so that people can focus is to normalize their experience. And it might be really important for you to say, you know, Mac, it's okay not to feel okay. These are crazy times and I get it. So first, like, so how are you feeling? 
And in terms of work, if you've been working from home for this far, is checking in. So how is that going? What's distracting you? And then how can I or how can we as the organization, how can we support you so you can do what you need to do at home? Right. And the thing is, you may not be able to meet all their needs, but if you don't ask the question, then you can't involve them in co-creating the solution. I mean, most people get the fact that, yeah, our economy is in shambles and everything like they will bend over and do what they can to keep things going. Most people I know who have jobs are grateful to have jobs right now because so many people don't. I mean, look at the entire hospitality industry for right now, for example. So I'd start by reaching out to other people. And then as a, obviously you're in a role is having the conversations with your organization around what are our key performance targets and what is, what is realistic about what we're trying to achieve this year? And do we have to rethink that? And in that, having those conversations of what are our priorities? Are our priorities, for example, to make sure that we can keep as many people as employed as possible? I mean, so these are the kind of questions that people need to be asking at multiple levels in organizations. You know, what, are, what is the focus? And a lot of difficult decisions are being made by many people. And I'd say as a leader, the willingness to say, I don't have all the answers, like to throw off that superhero cape, to stop pretending like you need to know everything and fix everything. No one expects you to know everything. And I think it's being human. This is a time to lean in and be exceptionally human with people and communicate with them, over communicate, let them know where you are in the process because that's what you can do. I mean, there's certain things that are in your control. There's certain things that are not. A global pandemic is not in your control. And none of your employees are expecting you to have that under control. What you can do is your response to it. So how can you personally stay grounded? How can you connect with people? How can you try to support them in whatever ways you can? And how can you look at making business decisions that make sense for the most people in the most beneficial ways moving forward. So that's where I'd start. Now that's beautiful. It sounds like you really keep these three C's as the the focal point of your work and teachings. Yeah. Connection, communication, collaboration. Well, this is the thing. I mean, and so people ask me now, why, you know, how did you write the book or did you sit down and write these? Like the book didn't, I didn't sit and write the book as much as the book wrote itself. What I mean by that is the book comes out of me having worked with over 2,000 groups in over 20 years, and I started taking notes on different stories and examples, and those notes turned into blog posts. And then after about five years, I had about 250 blog posts, and I started reading through them and looking for what were the common themes. And there were three major themes that kept showing up connection, communication, and collaboration. So the reason that you hear that that's at the heart of this is because I see that these three themes are the heart of what makes for an effective leader. Beautiful. Now let's, let me ask you one more. And then I have another one after this too. They just keep popping <laughs> my head. One, one more and another one. Okay. All right. There'll be only be two more, but this year we've experienced, and thank God my daughter was a junior and not a senior in college last year because, you know, there was no graduation for high school seniors, there was no prom. For baseball players, there was no season. And even for college seniors, you know, a lot of things did not turn out as they had planned. And so now we're heading into another year of uncertainty for young people. 
What advice would you give the young person today, be they a newly graduated um, college freshman, like senior, now they're a college freshman, or even a college senior who graduated last year, they did not get, they did not have a good 2020. How can they be prepared to move forward without having that experience and without turning bitter and angry? Yeah, yeah. So it's a great question, Mac. I think, you know, if we look at, you know, missing out on a graduation or a prom, what we're really looking at is we're not, what we're missing is the ritual of closure and rituals. We should never underestimate the power of rituals because what they do is rituals serve as transition points to help us move from one stage of life to another. And rituals can be as big a thing as a graduation or a wedding or a funeral, but we also have simple little rituals like your morning cup of coffee, right? You might do that the same way. And the idea is that rituals are things that get repeated because we know they work, which is why we have a graduation every year for our, our graduates. And we, you know, so I'd say to all the people who are feeling maybe a bit bitter and like, how come I didn't get this is first of all, I hear you. You know, so I want to normalize that experience and say, I hear you. That, that sucks. That's a crappy thing to have to go through. And then I would suggest, what can you do? And it's not going to be a replacement, but what can you do in your own way to ritualize your experience of graduating, of prom, or of whatever, is creating some kind of a ritual because it's about you feeling the ability to close that chapter so you can move on to the next thing. And I would invite you to create that ritual for yourself or finding people who can help co-create that ritual with you. Because yeah, your school was supposed to do that and they couldn't. So what can you do to do that? And then to actually be mindful and intentional around noticing, you know, what is it you're letting go of? What are you transitioning out of? And what are you transitioning into? It's not going to be an exact replacement, but I think it's, it's becoming more aware of when, instead of just going, oh, you know, I missed my prom or I missed my graduation, what it is you're really missing, you're missing the closure and the transition. So this is about stepping into a higher level of intentionality and a higher level of, frankly, of consciousness. And so I think that applies to any of us because everyone's been missing something this year, whatever that is. You know, one of my aunts, one of my father's sisters, died of COVID in April and trying to do a Zoom funeral, it isn't the same, you know, and not being able to come together, it isn't the same. And in the midst of that, we set up these family meeting Zoom calls for every week, every Saturday for a number of weeks. And in some ways, that was a way to try to create a ritual around closure because we couldn't do it the regular old fashioned way. So first look at rituals and then create them so that you can transition and again, realize this, these are extraordinary times. And so we have to try to manage things as well as we can. I do want to ask you one more question, and I appreciate the answer for the other. Um, is your grandmother still alive? No, no. My grandmother passed away in 1992. 92. Yeah. If your grandmother was still alive, based on your memory of her, how do you think she would be handling what we're experiencing now in a pandemic, just based on her experiences prior? That's a, it's a great question. <laughs> My first thought is that she would actually somehow 
she would, I mean, she, I think she would have been fine. She would just like do what you need to do. I mean, this is a woman who used to like, to clean, to, to mop the floors in our little two bedroom apartment in Flushing, Queens. She would get down on her hands and knees with a bucket and, and just like literally mop the floor on her knees by hand until she was, I don't know, in her eighties. I mean, this is the way, like, that's just who she was. I think she would just take it in stride. She's like, just do what you need to do. You know, she'd probably be a little bit harder than that and just be like, kind of just shut up, just shut up and you're going to be okay. Like, it's fine. Like, this isn't a big deal. Or like, you think, you think this is bad? Look, you know, you're being asked to sit on the couch, just like you're fine. You know, she would like put things in perspective. Um, very much so. Yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. So much rich information. And so if somebody's listening to this today and says, boy, you know, I really need to up my game. I need to learn to adapt and change. What things would you suggest? How can they find a copy of your book? And are there any other programs that you offer that our listeners might be able to take advantage of? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, if you've listened this far and you want to keep adapting, congratulations, because the first step is just the, I want to, I will do something, right? So many people don't do that. So if you want to reach out, there's a few things, a few resources. Obviously I have this book I'm super proud of, and I think it's, it's a great resource and you can learn more about it at www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. It's spelled exactly the way it sounds, crackingtheleadershipcode.com. That will take you to the book webpage. You can learn all about the book. You can download the first chapter for free right there, as well as that takes you to the alainhunkins.com website. It takes you to a subpage of that. So surf around on the website. And I'm really excited because starting October 5th, and you'll see this information on the website, I'm offering a 30-day Cracking the Leadership Code online challenge where you can be part of a community where we're, we're going to be taking content from the book, but turning it in online using a technology platform, using habit formation principles, principles from positive psychology and gamification to become a better, more intentional leader. And you can read all about that. There's a subset, alanhunkins.com forward slash 30 day challenge. You can navigate, you'll find it on the website. It'll be the easiest way to find the 30 day challenge. Now you'll see as it's listed on the website, the normal price for that is $199 per person um, for the 30 days. It will include a bunch of other stuff that'll be listed on the website. But I was mentioning to Mac, what I'd like to do is gift three listeners with a for three free spots to the challenge so if you are interested in being in the challenge and think you know i'd love to do this but maybe the investment or you just want to put your name in we're going to do a little raffle as it were for three spots from listeners of this podcast so what you'll need to do is you'll have to email me at alain a-l-a-i-n at alainhunkins.com. That's A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. And what you'll need to do is just in the subject line, put down 30-day challenge raffle. We'll call it a raffle. Sure. 30-day challenge raffle, and then put your name and your email address, and then we'll enter you. And if we have too many people, we'll do a drawing and we'll pick those people. And otherwise, I will get back to everyone to let them know where they're in standing with that. So feel free to be in touch with me. Any questions come up, connect with me on LinkedIn. I love to help people to become better leaders. That is what my life's work is all about. And thank you for listening to this conversation with Matt. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. 
At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.